You're listening to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M, where she breaks down the nitty gritty basics of nursing concepts. Hello and welcome to Nitty Gritty Nursing with Nurse M. Today I'm going to try to break down cardiomyopathies and what patients look like and what our nursing considerations are going to be. In order to do this, I think it should be said that there are three different types of cardiomyopathy. If you don't know them, you're going to hear about them right now. And the way that I remember the three different types of cardiomyopathy is I just remember Dr. H because it's dilated, restrictive, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Dilated cardiomyopathy is when the heart, which is just the pump of the body, becomes too thin. Uh, The muscles become too thin. The ventricles dilate and the muscles become thin, so they become weak, etc., the R for restrictive cardiomyopathy is when the it becomes too hard and it becomes restrictive. And then you've got your hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is too big and too thick. And basically all of these, when we talk about cardiomyopathy, cardiomyopathy leads to the weaker pump, which is your heart. And if your pump or your heart cannot beat appropriately, you're going to have low cardiac output, which means you're going to have low oxygen that is properly circulated around the body. Now, the way that cardiomyopathy develops is there's twofold, right? So the primary development is that it'll start by itself. There's some reason why people get cardiomyopathy. But what happens is when individuals get cardiomyopathy, what then happens is because there's so much strain on the heart or it's not beating correctly, these patients can then also develop hypertension or various valve diseases or disorders. So let's first talk about dilated cardiomyopathy because it's the D in Dr. H. And dilated cardiomyopathy is just when the muscles are really distended. The ventricles of the dilated cardiomyopathy are super super dilated. And because they're dilated, it's really thin heart muscles, kind of like a balloon. So if you were to blow up a balloon, essentially like you could envision that as dilated cardiomyopathy. It is the most common of all of the cardiomyopathies. And the chambers of the heart stretch out and loosen the valves subsequently. So what this means is because the chambers have stretched, it's weaker in contraction, there's an ineffective, it's an ineffective systolic pump. So what that means is on systole, when the heart squeezes, especially those ventricles, and it's supposed to send blood to the body and to the lungs, instead of having a an effective systole, it's ineffective. So what that means is the blood doesn't go in the forward direction that we want it to because the heart is stretched so thin, it doesn't have the muscle strength to do that. So what we end up seeing is the blood will then back up back into the lungs and to the body, re- resulting in poor cardiac output. So from that left ventricle, for example, instead of it pushing forward through the aorta to circulate through the body, the blood gets backed up into the lungs. And from that right right side of the heart, instead of pushing forward into the lungs, the blood gets backed up into the rest of the body. And because of this, it results in this big cascade. The body thinks that it's hypotensive because it's got really poor cardiac output. So it tries to compensate and it tries to compensate by increasing the heart rate. So these people become tachycardic. And also, because the body thinks it's hypotensive, it stimulates the kidneys to produce renin to hold onto fluid, which then increases the blood pressure. So you can see that this cascading of events is not ideal in dilated cardiomyopathy. Now, what do these patients look like that have dilated cardiomyopathy? 
here's how they present. They're going to be low on oxygen because there's not the proper forward flow because the ventricles on that systole, on that systolic squeeze with the thin muscles, it cannot properly pump blood out. So because we have low O2, low perfusion, these patients might have syncope. They're going to have altered mental status. And because the oxygen is low and not being adequately perfused, they're going to be restless and agitated. These are early signs of hypoxia. They're going to be short of breath. They're going to have fatigue again because they're not getting the proper blood flow out and the pump will start to fail. The pump meaning the heart. So if I reference the pump, I'm just talking about the heart. And when this starts to fail, the left side backs up into the lungs. So what do you expect to hear? You're going to hear crackles. And from the right side, when that pump fails, that blood and that fluid volume, right? Because we're holding on to extra fluid volume because the body thinks we're hypotensive because our cardiac output is absolute crap. The fluid that backs up in from the right side of the heart is going to go to the body. So we're going to see edema. We might see variations of a um, you know, ascites, they might have jugular vein distension on their neck because all of that blood flow is trying to get into the right side of the heart to get to the lungs to be oxygenated and it just cannot. So inside the heart, we know that with cardiomyopathy, not only does it affect the pump, but it also affects the valves. And because of that, the heart will then develop regurgitation. It's already doing it because every time there's a systolic squeeze and dilated cardiomyopathy, it doesn't have the muscle strength to move the blood forward, so it falls backwards, especially through the tricuspid and the mitral valves. This will then also result in the development of a murmur. So how do we diagnose this in patients? Basically, we can do a chest x-ray and on that chest x-ray, we can actually see some cardiomegaly because the heart becomes dilated, right? So we have an idea of what a normal heart would look like on an x-ray. When we take a chest x-ray in patients with dilated cardiomyopathy, we can actually see a really enlarged heart. They will also get an echocardiogram to evaluate the heart wall structures and we'll measure the ejection fraction of the heart and how much blood is actually being properly pumped out. A normal ejection fraction should be somewhere in the ballpark of 55 to 70%. When we get patients that have an ejection fraction or an EF, is how you might also hear it described, that's less than 40, that's bad, because it means that the blood is not getting out. And some patients may also end up with an angiography to look specifically at the heart to rule out any sort of ischemic disease that could have been a contributor to the development of the dilated cardiomyopathy. The other big thing that we do is we'll do lab work. And what we're specifically looking at is a BNP, which stands for B-type nitric peptide. And it's actually a hormone that is secreted by cardiomyocytes in the heart's ventricles, specifically in response to stretching caused by increased ventricular volume. And because we know that the heart is already being stretched, we're going to see elevated levels in this. Typically, a BNP should be 100 or less. That's we, that we think of that as being normal. Anything higher than 100, we're starting to see mild elevation. You know, uh, 300 plus for a BNP is going to be mild heart failure. 600 plus, moderate. 900 plus is a form of severe heart failure. So how do we treat What are our interventions going to be? This is the eye of the pie, right? The goal ultimately in these patients is to increase cardiac output, which thereby will increase oxygen to the body. So we will give them a series, we can give them a series of medications and they're the ABCD drugs and the ABCD 
drugs are designed to calm the heart down, drop the blood pressure or the heart rate. So the A of the ABCs is ACE inhibitors. Any medication that ends with a prill, like listen, a prill, it will help lower the blood pressure so that the heart is not nearly as strained. We can also give beta blockers, which end in the LOL, like atenolol, and that helps to slow the heart rate down. We can then give C, calcium channel blockers, and those are going to be medications that end in a depine or a SEM or an amyl, so like nifedipine, diltiazem, or verapamil. And calcium channel blockers just sit there and they soothe that heart and they calm it down. The first D in the ABCD drugs algorithm is digoxin. And we can give digoxin, which is a cardiac glycoside, which increases deep contractility. And so what that means is it makes the, the contraction improved. So we get more bang for our buck for every time that heart contracts. Digoxin is a funny one where we would hold it specifically if the apical heart rate was less than 60. And then we give D, which is the second D, which is diuretics, either a loop or a thiazide diuretic like ferrosamide, frequently known as Lasix, or HCTZ, which is the hydrochlorothiazide, to reduce the blood volume. Because again, remember, our body was triggered with a decrease in cardiac output to say, oh, we need to retain fluid, which released renin, which had these patients hold on to more fluid, which was just compounding the issue. So in dilated cardiomyopathy, we can give ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, and diuretics to help ultimately increase cardiac output, which will then increase oxygen to the body. Now, these patients, their education is going to be specific on diet and lifestyle changes. So if you can remember the word dress for dilated cardiomyopathy, right, in terms of their D, diet, we need them to adhere to a low-sodium, low-fat diet. The R in dress is for rest periods because these patients don't have the same cardiac output as someone who doesn't have dilated cardiomyopathy. And so they need the rest periods in order to conceive the oxygen because they don't have enough of it circulating adequately to begin with. The E is for exercise. And this is for conditioning. This is to prevent deconditioning. So this is going to be like cardiac rehab to help perfuse the heart, prevent the deconditioning of someone who is then going to maybe not be incredibly active and rather sedentary. The first S in dress is to encourage them to stop smoking and drinking if that's something that they do. And then the second S is really to help guide them into stress reduction techniques. So for dilated cardiomyopathy, those are the key elements. We're going to move into restricted cardiomyopathy now. And restrictive cardiomyopathy, restrictive, think like rock hard. This The heart muscle is rock hard. It does not allow for the ventricles to stretch at all. So because the ventricles cannot stretch at all, no blood comes in and it can't refill with that restrictive nature of it. I shouldn't say no blood comes in, but minimal blood comes in because if no blood came in, they'd be dead. So ultimately, what happens in restrictive cardiomyopathy is that less blood comes in, which means that there's less cardiac output, which means that there's less oxygen out to the body. The signs and symptoms of someone who has restrictive cardiomyopathy, like a rock, 
right? The heart is like a rock. There's not much elasticity at all, are going to be the exact same signs and symptoms and presentation as someone with dilated cardiomyopathy, right? Because they have low oxygen, because it's not circulating, because the ventricles cannot fill adequately to pump out what is required of the body, and the pump starts to ultimately fail. And so people who get restrictive cardiomyopathy, if you remember the two Ds, darn genetics and damage, Okay, so people who get restrictive cardiomyopathy, it only happens one of two ways. Either they've got some sort of genetic predisposition, like amyloidosis, where protein deposits are then left into the heart, or sarcoidosis, where there's this inflammatory cell deposits, or genetically, they can have hemochromatosis, which are iron deposits. And when these deposits end up in the heart cell muscles, it ends up preventing it from being able to adequately squeeze and have that flexibility to fill appropriately. Now, the second D is damage. And this is usually from some sort of radiation, like chemotherapy, or maybe they just had, you know, multiple CTs or like hundreds of thousands of chest x-rays and the radiation has just caused direct damage to the heart that causes it to become restrictive in nature. When we go to diagnose people with restrictive cardiomyopathy, there's a few things to consider, right? When we think about dilated cardiomyopathy, I said, if we take a chest x-ray of the heart, we're going to see it and the heart's going to look really big because it's been dilated. It's been blown up like a balloon. In restrictive cardiomyopathy, when we actually take a picture, a chest x-ray of the heart, it's, it's totally a normal sized heart. The problem is that the muscle is stiff. So we'll do an echo to, again, look at the heart wall structures and the echo is probably going to be a normal echo. And then what can happen is we can do an MRI to rule out some sort of like pericarditis, right? Because you would, you would worry about pericarditis restricting the heart's ability to properly pump. Go and listen to the pericarditis uh, podcast if you're confused about what pericarditis is. Now, patients who have restrictive cardiomyopathy, the primary goal, again, is to increase cardiac output, which is going to increase oxygen to the body. Now, restrictive cardiomyopathy is unique because we treat the cause. Now, there's only two reasons patients would get restrictive cardiomyopathy. Remember those darn or damn genetics and damage. So if damage is the result of some sort of radiation, we need to remove (laughs) the patient from whatever radiation exposure they're getting and decrease it, treat that cause. Most cases of restrictive cardiomyopathy, because it's really hard actually to get so many CTs or x-rays to cause a version of restrictive cardiomyopathy. Um, So most cases of restrictive cardiomyopathy are actually genetic. And because it's genetic, the only really true tried and true treatment is going to be a heart transplant. The heart is restricted. It's like a rock. So it's not going to adequately perfuse the person as they need. So they need to have a heart transplant. Now, the last version of cardiomyopathy is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Remember, Dr. H, dilated, restrictive. Now we're on to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is like a huge, you have to think of it like a huge trophy, like the heart muscle has won this giant trophy. And that's because the the walls of the ventricles thicken and they become huge. Now, this is the most deadly of the three versions of cardiomyopathy, but it's not as common. 
And it is actually the biggest cause of sudden death in young active people. And the only cause behind hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that I am aware of is darn genetics. And the heart becomes really, really thick and hard. And because it becomes really, really thick and hard, it limits the heart from filling. So because it limits the heart from filling, again, less blood in means less blood out. Less blood out means decreased cardiac myopathy or decreased cardiac output and low oxygen levels. Now, I said it's probably the most deadly one. And what makes it most deadly? Well, the reason why it makes it most deadly is because the septal wall between the ventricles becomes super thick, right? It becomes hypertrophic and it can become obstructive. So there's a transition between there's non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In the non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the walls of the ventricles and the septal wall in between the ventricles are quite thick, but it doesn't impede the ventricular outflow from the left side to the aortic valve. So these patients are dyspneic. They're going to have angina. They're going to have some cardiomegaly. They'll have probably a few ventricular dysrhythmias. They might have heart failure versus obstructive cardiomyopathy, where the septal wall in between the ventricles is so thick, if you put like a big trophy in the middle of it, and you could see it reaching out and encroaching on where both the pulmonic and the aortic valve are located, you can then understand a little bit more closely why it's so lethal. Now with the obstructive version of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the problem is when we have that systole or when we're trying to squeeze, if that septal wall is so thick in between the ventricles, it can occlude the output of the aortic valve. So that wall can become so thick that it encroaches on where they that aortic valve is in the left ventricle. So every time the heart squeezes, right, it's going to prevent blood flow from going out of the aortic valve because that thick wall just covers it. Well, if that's the case, then they have no cardiac output and nothing gets perfused and really bad things happen. So if someone has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the signs and symptoms, this can totally be asymptomatic. Right? I said this was the most deadly because oftentimes we don't know, especially young people with their genetics, we don't know that they have it until something terrible happens, like they collapse on the field when they're playing a sport because their heart is beating so quickly that with that thick septal wall in between the ventricles on one of those squeezes, it prevents enough blood from going through that they lose consciousness and they collapse. If we know about it, again, just remember, it's low cardiac output, low O2. So they're going to be short of breath. They're going to be fatigued. They're going to have syncope and have altered mental status because they're not getting enough perfusion. And in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patients can have sudden death because of that huge septal wall being hypertrophic and preventing outward flow from the aortic valve in the left ventricle. So the key for a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is early detection. That is key. Um, you know, when people go in for the annual physicals, this is oftentimes where it's, where it's caught because we can hear a heart murmur. There will be a systolic ejection murmur present, especially when they bear down or they strain and they really kind of squeeze that heart. Their chest x-ray, totally normal. Their echo, when we do the echo and we look specifically at the structure of the heart, we'll be able to see the super thick septal wall in between the ventricles. 
Um, and then from a lab work standpoint, it's genetic tests that we can do, darn genetics that are causing this in, in young individuals. So how do we treat someone who's got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Most of the time, depending on the severity, they'll do a septal wall myectomy, which means they'll go in and that septal wall that's in between the two ventricles that's preventing or reducing forward flow from the left ventricle to the rest of the body, they'll cut a piece of that away. And then we'll give them beta blockers. Again, those end in LOL, like atenolol. And we do that to try to block beats inside the heart to reduce that heart rate. We will then also give them calcium channel blockers to calm that heart down, drop the blood pressure, reduce the strain of the heart, like nifedipine or diltiazem. And there's three things that you will never, ever give. There's three Ds. Never give the three Ds. And the three Ds are dilators like nitroglycerin, digoxin, and diuretics. Don't ever give those three things. And then in terms of education that we give these patients, right, when they're diagnosed with it, we want them to avoid anything that could potentially be deadly. And where that comes into play is how their heart is going to strain and what would precipitate potentially that hypertrophic septal wall from occluding that aortic valve preventing forward flow. So no heavy lifting, right? Like when they bear down, that increases the intra-abdominal and thoracic pressures. No bearing down to have bowel movements or bursts of activity. Like if they suddenly start to sprint and there's an increase in the heart's demand, the heart, as it squeezes, could squeeze hard enough that that septal wall occludes the aortic valve. We have no forward flow. And then even with position changes, we would want to educate people about, you know, don't do sudden position changes because that could potentially lead to some sort of sudden death. And ultimately, to be safe, these patients really need to go very slow. As just a side note, I know that some of these cardiomyopathies can actually be quite complicated to try to understand the different components of the heart that I'm trying to explain and why they're so dangerous. So I do encourage you that if it's within, you know, your interest to maybe even print off a picture of the heart with all the different chambers and the valves so that as I go through the different, you know, descriptions of the cardiomyopathies, you can kind of envision it yourself. But, you know, for others, it may not be. With that said, you know, if you're enjoying this podcast and you like some of the topics that have been covered or you're wishing that there was just more to some of the topics, uh, please feel free to uh, message me um, through the email that is listed in the podcast description if you think that you would want something else or if you want further explanation on something. I'm happy to review that and then take it into consideration, if you will, as to whether or not it's in my purview and my expertise on trying to break it down in a very nitty gritty way. With that, this was everything that I had to give on the different types of cardiomyopathies in terms of Dr. H with that dilated, restrictive, and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Make sure that you reference your books and any other content that you see fit in order to fill in any of the additional gaps that you have on it. And from that point, I guess just go forth and keep on learning.